Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be another chat with my collaborator, G.K. Jeffers, in which we'll look back at the episodes on the first half of the 20th century. Hello, G.K. Welcome back to your own podcast. Thank you so much. I think I've done that joke before, but it never gets old. <laughs> We're going to be focusing on the part three of the podcast series, as it were, in which we looked at philosophy sort of from the turn of the 20th century into the middle of the 20th century, where we are now with uh, King and Malcolm X. And I thought that we could maybe start thinking about that by talking a little bit about the continuity between the late 19th century and the 20th century. Who do you see as the most influential thinkers that we looked at from the late 19th century who had an impact on the first decades of Africana thought in the 20th century? That's a great question. I mean, depending what we want to highlight from the early part of the 20th century, then you can even go back to someone like Douglas because when you have the Du Bois versus Washington debate, which is something that we centered in our first episode of part three, you have this interesting aspect of that debate where Du Bois certainly wants to claim the mantle of Douglas and wants to treat Washington as basically abandoning the kind of tradition of protest and a fight for what he calls assimilation through self-assertion, which we can call uh, you know, integration on terms of freedom and equality, right? He sees Douglas as the leader who represented that most, and he sees Washington as sort of betraying that, and he's positioning himself and others like him as fighting for that same ideal that Douglas was fighting for. But the funny thing is that you have Washington at one point, I think, authoring or maybe having a ghostwriter author a biography of Frederick Douglass there's a way in which it's important for Washington to position himself as heir to Douglas. You know, I think we mentioned either in part two or in this part, how the very year that Douglas dies, 1895, is when Washington rises to fame with his Atlanta Exposition Address. Douglas, he loomed large in part two in certain ways, and the Du Bois-Washington debate is one important way in which his legacy is an early 20th century matter. But I do think that another person worth mentioning is, is Edward Blyden. And I think perhaps more than people realize, he is a major influence, or rather, maybe what I would say is that even us doing these episodes has helped me to realize what a major influence he was. He's someone that I find interesting in and of himself. And, you know, even I think in our conversation for part two, I think I used him as an example of different things that we were talking about that were important in that part on a number of occasions. So I find him interesting in and of himself. But I would say that doing these episodes for part three really shows me the scope of his influence. And partly I mean by that even the geographical scope. So we had an episode early in part three on 
West African thinkers, particularly in what is now Ghana and what is now Nigeria. And, you know, Blyden stuck out as so important that, you know, eventually we named the episode In Blyden's Wake. You know, it's that's where he lived for much of his life, although not not in either of those places. He was in, of course, Liberia and also Sierra Leone. But he has this huge influence on West African thought as it is developing in the 20th century. And then you have the influence on Garvey. So Washington being somehow an influence on Garvey is in a way more famous. And that's because Garvey talks about how reading up from slavery made this big impact on him. For those listeners who are philosophers or who know a lot about the history of Western philosophy, Garvey reading Washington sort of has that stature of Kant being awoken from, you know, slumbers by Hume. So Washington is sort of famous in that sense as an influence on Garvey, even though, as we pointed out in the episode, it's sort of weird because there are very significant differences between them. Yeah, I mean, Washington is often thought of as like the the patron saint of assimilation, and Garvey is the patron saint of not assimilating for nationalism, separatism. Right. Yeah, and that's true how the fact that Garvey's so inspired by Washington helps to show how those categories can be very oversimplified. I mean, you know, there's an important sense in which seeing Washington as all about assimilation is weird because he is about accepting separateness in this important sense. And so if you're accepting separateness, you're not really all about assimilation. I think people see him as an assimilationist figure because of the ways in which he was so much about Black people fitting themselves into this certain kind of vision of capitalist America. Yeah, so so there's all of that. But it, it did strike me that once you know that Garvey read Blyden early on, and if I recall, we even maybe said that Domingo, the Black socialist from Jamaica who knew him, was maybe who introduced him to Blyden's work, sort of really fits. Uh, it's almost, in a way, more obvious than Washington that Blyden would be an influence. And then, you know, you'd think that, okay, maybe it would have petered out following that, but by the time we got to the episode on Negritude, we were mentioning Blyden as an influence again, and Senghor himself writes an introduction to an edition of Blyden's letters where he makes it clear that he sees Blyden as a progenitor of Negritude. Now, I will say that at that point, Senghor is saying that, well, I wasn't reading Blyden. You know, I think that this influence sort of came down to me through, and then he's, he highlights actually Du Bois, and he highlights Alain Locke and the New Negro as a book. So he sees Blyden's influence as mediated through those figures, but nevertheless, he reconstructs that lineage where Blyden is this figure of, you know, an important progenitor of a tradition within which Senghor sees negritude as standing. So I think in that regard, Blyden is perhaps a surprisingly important influence on Africana thought as it develops in the 20th century. A name that came up a few times there already is Du Bois. 
And yeah. listeners no may surprise. not realize, although maybe they figured it out, that while we've been writing these uh, podcasts, you've also been writing a book about Du Bois and that he's someone you've worked on a lot. Would it be fair to say, hey, this podcast has been ridiculously Du Bois-centric and it's just because Chike is figuring out what to cover and he loves Du Bois? Or can you like make a case that Du Bois is really such a central figure in early 20th century thought? That's a fair question. And I think that we can make that case. I mean, here's a true fact. As we mentioned, in between the first episode of part three, where we use Du Bois to introduce the 20th century, and the episode where we looked at his later life and thought, or especially we were looking at the years 1920 to his death in 1963. There's a lot of episodes in between them, and every one of them mentioned Du Bois. And it's important to remind listeners that as much as I may have planned the general topics, what we're doing, about half of those scripts were written by you. And so in a number of places where you were writing on this or that figure, it just was inescapable to you that you had to write about your books, right? I mean, my answer to the last question, right, even when I moved to talking about Blind's influence, then at every turn, Du Bois has been a figure at least to comment on. So I talked about Blyden's influence on the West African thinkers, but as we saw, J.E. Casely Hayford felt like in order to make the case for Blyden as sort of the greatest African thinker, he had to do the comparison to Du Bois and Garvey. The feud with Du Bois is hugely important. And as I said, Sanger himself sees Du Bois as a precursor to negritude. So all of the thinkers themselves are making reference to Du Bois. So, you know, I don't, I don't think we made anything up. I mean, yes, I am totally biased. I do think that Du Bois is one of the most important philosophical minds in world history. So, you know, yes, I'm biased, but I think the proof is, is in the pudding, so to speak. Yeah, it's, it's also a very uh, noticeable feature of the secondary literature on the period in general, that yeah. scholars will always compare people you might think of as more minor figures to Du Bois. And there's yes. always a reason, right? They all know him. They're all reading him. Yes. He's just incredibly influential. He's also so prominent for so long that people do things like trying to get him to back their projects, right? So the socialists That's quite right. like him to come out as a socialist, for example. And he's a little bit standoffish about that, but it means that he's part of the story of socialism as well, even if he's not a fully yeah. committed socialist. He is increasingly, you know, a sort of outspoken socialist as his life goes on. But I guess that sort of brings us to another markedly recurring topic in the podcast. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I, that really amazed me, the fact that it seemed for a while there, it seemed like everybody we were covering was some kind of socialist. And so the only meaningful debates within Africana philosophy in these decades was, well, what kind of socialist do you want to be? What kind of socialist to be? Right. Um, and, you know, sort of a picture of Washington spinning in his grave. <laughs> yeah, just... and, you know, it, it is, of course, important that there are a number of ways in which there are criticisms of socialism that have been prominent. So Garvey, right, is antagonistic towards socialism and socialists, black socialists, you know, he thinks of black socialists as 
sort of being dupes of a certain kind of white leadership, just like he thinks of Du Bois, thought of not as socialist, but as part of, say, the NAACP and other people that might be termed black liberals following Michael Dawson in that interview that we did with him. And he thinks of those black people as dupes, certain kind of white leadership as well. So Garvey, in that sense, is an important example of what we, who we might call an anti-socialist during this period, who is very prominent. And then one thing that you might not want to call anti-socialist, but nevertheless is a, an important recurring theme as we've gone on, is breaks with particularly the Communist Party. So, so people like Wright and Ellison, who are breaking with the American Communist Party, you have M.A. Césaire breaking with the French Communist Party. And so, especially when thinking of socialist thought as embodied institutionally, it's extremely important that we have these you know, cases of thinkers opposing what they have previously been attracted by. But perhaps, you know, in order to try and think about why it is that we have come back again and again to this theme of socialism, well, I mean, there are of course, going to be people who are listening who are going to say, well, of course, you keep coming back to it again and again because it's the right way to think, right? <laughs> but I mean, the even the, the pattern of, of people being attracted by various communist parties or various forums for socialist thought, and then even if they back away later, right, there's something there that, that is revelatory, apparently. So you might even, in an interesting way, compare it to the way that Christianity became a sort of inescapable part of what we were talking about with the philosophical thought of thinkers in part two, right? Once we were getting into 18th and 19th century Africana thought, it was just going to be the case that plenty of the figures, in fact, almost all of the figures, were going to be Christians. And for many of them, that Christianity was hugely important to their way of thinking. And there is something revelatory that people find in socialism or communism or Marxism or anything that we can say that, you know, wraps up all of those types of terms together. There's something revelatory that people find. And of course, one thing you might say is that in both cases, right, Christianity and Marxist or other kinds of socialist thought, there's a concern with freedom. So if we, you know, are doing this podcast about Africana philosophy, and there's naturally a concern with how to get free, how to be free, what freedom looks like, what freedom means, that's naturally going to be a recurring concern for Black thinkers. I think that's one of the ways to make it sort of unsurprising that in the 20th century, you get this massive turn towards the left and socialist thought. And maybe there's also a factor, which is that they look back to the roots of the problem in slavery and they see mm -hmm. that slavery fundamentally was all to do with economics right so you might yeah. think it's the foundation of america's prosperity yeah. right? it, it was a slave economic power yes and therefore there's a inextricable link between capitalist oppression of proletariat or whoever you want to call them so i mean in some in some authors we even had this kind of equation being drawn between the workers of the proletariat 
and the slaves, right? Uh-huh. Um, but yes. even if you don't draw the link that firmly, there is a uh-huh. tendency to say, well, you can't understand what was then called the Negro problem without understanding the problem with capitalism as well. So uh-huh. it's, I think it's, it's more than just that. I think it was obviously also just the case that in the early 20th century, if you were interested in liberation and somehow like pulling the mass off of the status quo and saying this is unjust, right? Marxism uh-huh. in a way was just the available paradigm for doing that. There's a stronger link to the concerns of Marxism and socialism than just that. It's, it's more than just like a mood. It's also uh-huh. that there is something genuine, there's a genuine link, right? Between slavery uh-huh. and capitalism. Right, and we of course even looked at a thinker, Eric Williams, who wrote a book called Capitalism and Slavery. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, right. so, that's so, what so I had in mind, right? So that's certainly an important point. The The interesting thing is that you, I mean, you have ways in which it seems like Marxist thought is going to be particularly relevant because of just trying to understand how capitalism is, is related to, to such things as, as slavery. But of course, that concern does make us look especially at the diaspora whether the United States or the Caribbean, which is what Williams was focused on, what we are going to see going forward, you know, presumably it's okay if during this conversation we give listeners little bits of, you know, heads ups about what's coming is we're, we're going to certainly see more cases of also African leaders for whom socialism is key to their thought. We've already, in fact, seen it with Senghor. Uh, African socialism is an important part of his philosophy and an important part of what Negritude meant to him. So, yeah, it's really something that throughout the Black world during the 20th century, it is just a major aspect of what people are thinking about. Can I pick on something else just mentioned, Mm. which is religion? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, what we just said sort of implies that socialism replaced Christianity. (laughs) <laughs> as a model for thinking about liberation. But on the other hand, here we are in the middle of covering Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, yes, indeed. And I'm really struck by the fact that in the mid-century, we've got mm-hmm. figures like Wright and also Baldwin, to some extent, who, I mean, Baldwin's okay. an interesting case because he sort of transposes a lot of religious themes into a secular way of thinking about things. Yes. But it, there's definitely an anti-religious current in Baldwin. Right. And yes. there's yes. a very strong anti-religious current in right. And right. we've got that going on pretty much at the same time as King, who is probably the most religious figure we've covered since maybe Turner. Interesting. Maybe well, yeah, because we haven't had a lot of clergymen recently. So King does sort of stand out that way. And also, but part of why King stands out as a religious figure is that King stands out as someone who shows the potential for Christianity to play this important role in a militant version of protest and in a militant version of seeking black rights. In other words, it's important that he represents a kind of rejection of versions of Christianity that would counsel patience and that would counsel, you know, virtues in ways that would accommodate the the status quo, right? Speaking of, of Du Bois, one of my favorite thinkers in The Souls of Black Folk from 1903, you know, his chapter 
on the church in that context really does make it sound like the black church is central sociologically, but it is somewhat impotent politically, right? And there's this interesting bit at the end where he has a sort of optimistic last paragraph of that chapter. I won't try and quote it from memory, although I would recommend that the listeners check it out because it says something about trying to move out of the valley of the shadow of death where liberty, justice, and whatever is marked for white people only. He has an optimistic paragraph that suggests that maybe it will change. So King, I think, ends up being this sort of embodiment of the optimistic prophecy at the end of that chapter. It is interesting, though, that before someone like Wright, we actually mentioned in the episode first introducing Black socialism, that Hubert Harrison, who can be perhaps highlighted here as an influential figure, as someone who I think that based on what we've said about the importance of socialism in the 20th century in Africana thought, and if we think about how Hubert Harrison and also A. Philip Randolph, how they are early progenitors in the the teens of that century, it's sort of interesting to see them as sort of founders of a tradition who need to be better recognized for their intellectual influence in that sense. And I can't remember if this goes for both of them, but we certainly mentioned that Harrison was non-religious or like claimed to be an agnostic, right? And so, yeah, it is interesting that starting from there, we've had a set of instances where people are moving away from Christianity or questioning Christianity. There are some important cases we have where people may not be anti-religious per se, but they are anti-Christianity. One of the best examples, of course, being Malcolm X. There's a questioning of Christianity and its hold on the Black world that comes sometimes from socialism, it comes sometimes from other sources, as in the case of X, but that's interesting as well. Hmm. There's another subgroup of people we looked at in this period who are professional philosophers, or more generally, we might want to say professional academics, because we looked at you know, historians and sociologists as well. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting to think about how they fit in, because in some ways they seem like they're off in their own, maybe this is what people always think about academics, they're off in their, we are off in our own world, right? Kind of not in the same space of debate and rhetoric as these activists, who it's mostly who we've been covering and certainly mostly who we've been talking about so far in this discussion. How do you see them fitting in? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because if you take our episode on African-American professional philosophers, certainly we did there give instances of sort of people who are academics in the standard sense where that's their primary activity. I think also of Oliver Cox in relation to this. So you were making the point that this is maybe true for not just the professional philosophers, but also some of the sociologists, economists, and historians. I think that's true for Oliver Cox as well, that he would be an example of someone who who just did his work in the academy. But having said that, I think that more often than not, figures we've looked at uh, don't fit what you've just described. So Elaine Locke, he is a figure in the academy that we've looked at. He also is so important as a cultural figure, you know, to the point of being identified with the Harlem Renaissance. I mean, you know, you asked the question to Leonard Harris. I mean, what about this sense that some people have that, like, we should credit him with inventing the Harlem Renaissance, right? And to which Leonard gave a very nuanced answer, 
part of which was yes. Right. <laughs> so in that sense, you know, the most important academic philosophy we've looked at cannot be seen as somehow secluded within the academy and not having wider cultural influence. And I think that that pattern holds for a number of other figures. I mean, Du Bois himself is an academic, but of course he, we see him leave his position at Atlanta University and start working with the NAACP after he helps to found it, right? There's no sense in which Du Bois can be seen as secluded within the academy. Someone who you might say is a bit more academic-y than him would be Carter G. Woodson. But I don't think that we can call the person who invented Black History Month someone whose work is just within the academy and doesn't have a wider influence. I mean, yeah, and he, you know, he also so, put out these sort of pamphlets uh, absolutely. Like, to teach people about Black history. And those were certainly not aimed at other academics. I mean, they were even aimed Precisely. at children. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Right. And I mean, even in the episode on Cox, we also look at Williams, who gives up the academy in order to be the first leader of independent Trinidad and Tobago. So... Yeah, I think that we, probably part of what you were noticing is that, you know, we didn't really have many people who could be counted as academics in part two, right? So almost sticks out, right? But who else had university jobs, right? There's a, there's not that many in part two, right? There's many in part three who had jobs within the academy at various times, perhaps not for all of their career. So I think you may be sort of noticing that. But as I said, I actually think that in terms of the figures we're covering, part of what made them have such a, a big impact is that they couldn't be just constrained within that academic role. Yeah, and that will continue in part four in the final part, because we're certainly going to look at several professional philosophers in that part. You just mentioned Trinidad and Tobago. And I, I want to recall something that happened when we were first planning this. So when we were talking about what music to use for part three, you said, let's use this jazz standard called St. Thomas, because it's a reference to Caribbean. And I said, Pachique, I mean, are we going to be really looking at that many thinkers who are from the Caribbean? I mean, come on, right? And won't they all be from either the United States or Africa? And you were like, oh, Peter. <laughs> and, oh, Peter. And that, I mean, that just shows how little I understood about what we were about to be covering because it almost feels like the majority of the figures we covered were from the Caribbean. And I mean, so first I just want to say you were definitely right. <laughs> but also I wanted to ask, whether we could dwell on that for a moment, because it seems like the Caribbean's almost like the glue that holds together Africana thought in this period, right? So you have yeah. the uh, connection between the Harlem Renaissance and Negritude. You have Negritude itself as something that bridges the gap between the Caribbean and Europe, because of course they go to France or in Paris. Okay. Um, okay. And you also have Caribbean figures moving back and forth between their home and Africa itself. We're going to see that again with Franz Fanon pretty soon. Yeah, that's right. And so yeah. it really seems like you'd almost take the role of these Caribbean thinkers as the ultimate proof that it makes sense to use the concept of Africana philosophy. I think that's right. Now, we acknowledged my bias with respect to Du Bois. I'll go ahead and acknowledge bias here again. I mean, I remember that we told listeners I'm from Toronto before, but like many of the Black people in Toronto, I'm of 
Caribbean descent. I mean, I will say we haven't yet looked at any figure from the two places that my parents are from. My father's from Dominica, not the Dominican Republic, but a different island. And my mother's from Guyana, which is not geographically part of the Caribbean, but which is importantly politically and culturally part of the Caribbean. I don't remember whether we've looked at a Guyanese thinker yet. We certainly will. Walter Rodney is going to come up in the episodes that, that we'll be doing that are yet to come. So there'll be places, there'll be people who are associated with, I guess, my origin in that sense. I feel like I had to practice saying Guyana at some point. So I think we must have yeah, 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 right. Listeners yeah, I mean, remember, <laughs> Indeed, yeah, no. You know, I think that to do this quick little tangent, I think you made me realize how confusing the pronunciation of Caribbean place names are. For example, there's a thing that happened where a number of these places were named, I guess, by the Spanish, but then they became British territories. And so you have places like Antigua and Grenada that I have to make sure you know are not Antigua or Grenada. (laughs) And, you know, there's there's other, I think, instances like that. So I, I never realized how confusing it can be simply because I take it for granted as someone who is of Caribbean parentage and grew up, you know, in a city where the majority of the Black population was of Caribbean background. So all of that to say, I mean, Yes, there's, I guess, potentially some bias there with me as well. But I think you've said enough to show that in researching all the figures that we're looking at, it's just clear that many of the the people that we're looking at who were from the Caribbean really were that significant. I think that you raise an interesting question and are going in the right direction when you talk about how the Caribbean as a space yeah, somehow does sort of hold things together. I mean, there's a lot of migration that used to happen and maybe to some extent still does, or not to some extent. There's a lot of migration that used to happen and still still does to a certain extent within the Caribbean. But then you also definitely have the importance of people going to the places that colonized, the places that they were from. So people going to Britain or France based on being from islands colonized by Britain or France. And you have the importance of the U.S. as a place to immigrate. And so as a result, you have thinkers who are doing important work within the Caribbean. But actually, if we do the count that you sort of suggested we could do, and we see how Caribbean thinkers potentially are a majority. I don't know if they really are. We'd have to really do this count. But, you know, it's not crazy to think they could end up a majority of who we've covered. But so many of them, they had impact by being in these other places like New York City, like London, like Paris, right? And so there is a a mobility, to use a term that you and Mina mentioned in the interview on King. There's a certain mobility that happens that that places people from the Caribbean in different locations and allows them to have this sort of outsized influence, especially, it feels outsized, especially when you look at, you know, how small some of these islands are. But, you know, I do love the fact that we had like a whole big chunk. I mean, I loved our joke where we said, you know, we'll stop looking at these Trinidadian men who were somehow associated with the left and for a change, we'll look at a Trinidadian woman that's associated with the <laughs> uh, in the form of Claudia Jones. I mean, like, and I should admit that 
even though my father is from Dominica, as an example of the movement that used to happen within the Caribbean, my grandfather, that is his father, was a Trinidadian. So maybe it maybe it really does come down to bias. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jones is a perfect example, right? Because she goes yeah. to London. I mean, she's in she's from Trinidad, but she goes to the United States and then winds up in London and actually sets up the festival there in honor of Caribbean. True. Culture. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, the other thing to say about Jones as an example, you know, I remember when we were talking about part two, we talked about how there's involuntary and voluntary movement. So, and in fact, the Caribbean was at issue there as well. So, Kuguano is involuntarily moved from what is now Ghana to Grenada and to certain other Caribbean islands and ends up in Britain. And only there is at that point sort of in charge of his own movements, right? Whereas Blyden, who's from the Caribbean, right? He's from ah, <laughs> he's from Saint Thomas, the the, uh, the island after which that uh, that song is named. Yeah. So you have Blyden, who voluntarily moves to the United States and then moves to West Africa, right? And it's interesting that we have voluntary and involuntary movement in the 20th century as well not because of enslavement, but, but, but because of deportation. And so both James and Jones end up moving around, partly because it's the Red Scare, they are in the United States. I mean, in the case of Jones, part of what is even more tragic about it is the fact that you know, she, had, she had lived in the United States from childhood, but she wasn't a citizen, she was deported. But that involuntary movement, as we noted, ends up giving us a new dimension of her thought philosophically and also the Notting Hill Carnival, which is a fun thing that I would like to go to sometime. And importantly, we made the point that for her, that cultural and, you know, in some sense, fun thing isn't totally disconnected from her views on, on politics because it's precisely the emergence of Caribbean people as a force within the British context and and as a unique civilization, since I think it's the way that jo- James sometimes frames it, or, as, or at least as a unique aspect of Western civilization, because James thinks of Caribbean people as importantly Western, and that being part of why they have the significance they do, right? Jones also frames her work uh, on the carnival is somehow related to displaying that unique contribution, right? And it's interesting, not to get too tangential, but it's interesting that James has that emphasis on the westernness of the Caribbean, and we've seen in Wright and Ellison this emphasis on, oh, sorry, Wright, Ellison, and Baldwin. Actually, maybe Ellison and Baldwin even more than Wright, actually, I might I might want to say. Uh, this emphasis on the Americanness of the African American, and we saw, you know, Baldwin saying that there's something actually uh, particularly Western about the African American, which he thinks it's interesting that they they're making sort of similar points to James, but it's not even clear how compatible the points would be because it's as if I, this is a bit of a caricature, but it's as if James is like we're the most Western, and it's as if Ellison and Baldwin are like we're the most Western, and you know, but but for each of them that that somehow really matters to understanding what Black people have the capacity to change about the way people think about Western civilization if people would start to listen to Black voices 
and their philosophical contributions. Yeah, that's that's really, I think, core to the whole concept of diasporic Africana philosophy. Though you really see oh. it in Baldwin, right, when he's confronted by negritude and, and also when he meets African leaders, right? And he yes. says, well, there's this unique point of view that you get when mm-hmm. you're an African-American because yeah. people from Africa just haven't been forced to grow up in and confront mm-hmm. the racial tensions between mm-hmm. European civilization, for lack of a better term, yeah. and mm-hmm. this, you know, having these roots in Africa. So for him, it's like the kind of dialectical situation and they can only see one side of it or maybe not even either side of it. So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of, I agree, there's a lot of, you know, people from the United States saying, well, we have the privileged point of view, people from the Caribbean Mm -hmm. saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And of course, Mm -hmm. as we're going to increasingly see this idea that it's really the decolonialization movement in Africa that will lead the way for the whole global problem of oppression, not even just among black people, but, you know, they start attaching what they're doing to like the liberation struggles in Asia and so on, like the Vietnam War, for example gets sort of dragged into it. Right, true. And I actually take Baldwin's critical stance on negritude as a, as an interesting example of the unity of our series. And I want to make this point because it's it seems perhaps easier to make this point by, you know, saying, well, oh, look, here are the thinkers that, you know, they're in all these different places. So, yes, Africana philosophy is not just about African American or African or Caribbean or Latin American thought. It's it's you know it's the whole shebang. I mean that's one of the ways it, we can make the point is through seeing the movement of people like James and Jones, but Baldwin going to France and Baldwin reflecting on what he shares with Africans when he's at the Congress of Black Writers and Artists, which is bringing together people from all these different places, including his own home, because Wright is there as well, and other African-Americans, African-American thinkers. I mean, I think it's almost stronger to make the point about Africana philosophy as a unified and coherent thought space, we might say, when you notice someone like Baldwin reflecting on what he shares with Africans. Because, yeah, the oneness of Africans and the peoples of the diaspora, it is, in some sense, an open and philosophical question. What would it mean, really, to, to recognize oneness here? And when you see Baldwin rejecting the oneness in some of the ways that he does, to me, it does nothing to sort of detract from the idea that Africana philosophy is a unity. Rather, it shows that this is a question for Baldwin in a way that it doesn't need to be a question, it's significance for you know some of his white American writer counterparts who he respected and who he you know had various interesting exchanges with. They don't need to think about the oneness of Africans and the peoples of the diaspora in the way that it was a question that, that compelled him right, to think and to write. Right? So even when you see someone rejecting that oneness, and in that sense, maybe going in the opposite direction of Pan-Africanism, then the sense in which we're covering a unified body of thought, I think, is in, in its own way exemplified by the example of Baldwin's critical stance on negative. That's actually would almost be a good place to end. But there's one other thing I wanted to get into before we stop, which is sort of the complement of where we started. So we started out by talking about the transition from 19th to 20th century. 
And maybe we could also think about the transition from early 20th century to mid 20th century. Because again, I think this is something that really surprised me. Because I guess, you know, like when you grow up in the United States, you know about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. and so on, the civil rights yeah, movement. It's hard right? to have not heard the names, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you've seen movies, whatever, right? But you don't yeah, have yeah. any sense of where that came from, really. Mm. And I was really struck by the fact that they're still using the phrase the new Negro. You have Garvey explicitly coming up. So, for example, we saw that Malcolm X has this complicated relationship to Garvey where his father and his mother are Garveyites. And then he kind of pretends that he didn't think about Garvey at all for <laughs> 20 years or something. And then he's like, oh, no, actually, I'm the country's leading Garveyite. As it turn- it's just that I kind of forgot. So that's, that's kind of uh, implausible, I thought, <laughs> a feature of his autobiography. It comes up in Invisible Man, the influence. Ross the Exhorter. Mm-hmm. Exactly, the sort of fictionalized version of Garvey. So I got the impression that was sort of like what you were saying about Frederick Douglass how he's this mm. continuing looming presence that everyone has to deal mm. with and maybe claim mm. or right. disown. Or, or not claim, right. But, yeah. I guess no one's disowning right. Douglas, but people are definitely disowning Garvey. That's true. Right. That's true. I mean, he, you know, he was contentious during his lifetime and he was contentious afterwards. Yeah. Um, and I think Even that's amongst an important his wives. point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I love that. I absolutely... I think it's so important that we did, you know, the episode on the two Amy's, right? And, and and gave them their due as thinkers, while at the same time, as I recall, you really felt like there's a movie waiting to be made here. Oh, I mean, yeah, the, definitely. The, actually, you know, that's also one of my strongest memories from doing research for the podcast, because usually, of course, we're reading books and, you know, journal articles and so on. Mm-hmm. But in that case, I actually looked at a lot of scanned images of the newspaper, the UNIA newspaper, Negro World, because that's where Amy Jakes Garvey's columns were published. And it was amazing to see them like in their original context, literally next to, you know, ads for for hair products and recipes for casseroles and stuff because it's on the women's page, right? Yes, indeed. And I I just thought that was amazing to really see how these things were presented to their original readers, which is something we don't usually get to do. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if I could reflect on it a bit more, I mean, one of the ways that we put it when we were talking about Garvey, and we, in fact, made the contrast explicit with Du Bois, that is, we noted that by now, people who are interested in philosophy are starting to hear about Du Bois. It's starting to become harder to just be completely ignorant of his existence which was the case for a lot of academic philosophers in the past, but that's becoming harder and and Du Bois is becoming accepted more and more as an important philosophical figure, right? And so we sort of made the the explicit contrast that that's not the case as of now or as of yet with Garvey. I mean, you know, actually William Paris, who is a philosopher at the University of Toronto in my hometown, he's actually been doing some work on Garvey so I don't want to say that, that that there's no one in philosophy who's been doing work on, work on Garvey, but it's been less common. And to again bring up my bias, I don't think we're going to come to some stage where Garvey gets the amount of attention from philosophers that Du Bois does. My own father would identify to a large extent as a Garveyite, and so I don't want to step on toes here. But you know, I do think that's probably because 
Du Bois gave philosophically richer. I mean, it's hard for anyone to compare to Du Bois, partly just because of this, the amount he wrote, right? And uh, but I mean, it's possible to write a lot without writing stuff with philosophical significance. So it's just he, he, you know, Du Bois is a masterful philosophical mind, and he is starting to get the attention he deserves. And I think his ideas are going to continue to push that, right? Mm-hmm. I do not put Garvey on the same level as a thinker. I'm sorry to anyone who that offends who's listening, right? But what I think we did emphasize, and what I do think is important, is that Garvey had such an impact, reached so many, and compelled so many that he, as we put it, reorganized Africana thought in certain ways revolved around him, whether it was people joining him or whether it was people opposing him. And so he became, you know, a flashpoint, we might say, in that sense, you know, and so he becomes a figure that you have to sort of treat as central if you're going to take seriously Africana thought as having philosophical dimensions, because he himself had things to say about why people should follow him, not just because, but rather as a way of opening their eyes to the inner strength of Black people, to the value of Black people. There's a message that is coming from Garvey that says, you are valuable. You don't need white people to acknowledge you in order for that value to be recognized. You have to acknowledge that value in yourself. And we have to, for ourselves, build up you know, a world that we want to see. And, and again, as we noted in the episode, that's probably part of the, the inspiration that Garvey took from Washington. Washington encouraged Black self-reliance. Garvey encourages Black self-reliance, but also with a militancy that we don't find in Washington, right? So Washington's accommodationism drops out. You get, you get the Black self-reliance from Washington combined with a militancy and a demand for respect that is a powerful message that naturally, for that reason, attracted some and then, you know, in various ways, those who opposed him, including Du Bois, I mean, Du Bois absolutely wants Black people to respect themselves, and Du Bois wants people, Black people to value themselves, and Du Bois wants Black people to do things that would help them progress. But Garvey's version of that message becomes something that Du Bois has to respond to. He ignores him for as long as he can, and eventually he has to respond to him. You know, and by the end of part sorry, not the end of part three, but by the most recent episodes we've done, right, we see Malcolm doing it again, right? And it's and he's doing it differently. I mean, yes, he's got the Garvier appearance, but it is super important. The his allegiance to the nation of Islam, the anti-Christianity aspects, which is different from Garvey, because that was not definitely not Garvey's thing. There's important differences between Malcolm and Garvey. But we see him sort of doing it again with such rhetorical power. I love the line that we have in there about what a dog who a taxi deserves and what a dog on two legs that sicks a dog on you deserves, right? So you have just moments of rhetorical brilliance like that where, again, it's just natural that you're going to have tons of Black people who are going to be attracted by this powerful message of valuing yourself and doing for yourself. 
So we then again have to sort of put that into conversation with what we're getting from King, you know, with the kinds of ways that King and also Baldwin in interesting ways are asking us to both feel this anger, this righteous indignation, and yet also feel this love. You know, you have these interesting different approaches, but Garvey is central because he's just one of the most powerful encapsulations of this idea of Black self-respect. And, and so to a certain extent, the question of how to respect yourself and the question to how, of how to attain dignity has been arguably the central theme of the podcast since part two. We, in fact, highlighted that when we were discussing part two, because we talked about how the immigration debate is partly about how do we you know, have self-respect and dignity. So that, I think, is, is just one of the themes that is naturally coming up again and is powerfully put forward by Garvey in a way that, that helps to make him the big figure that he was. Well, that really is a good note to end on, especially since you just mentioned again this contrast and relationship between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., which is exactly the topic of the next episode. So yeah. uh, listeners can look forward to that. Thank you so much, Chike. This was fascinating, as always. Thank you. It, it's been such an honor to be part of this. I think we're doing important work here. So thank you. Thank you. And please join us next time when we'll be looking at the later careers of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. here on the History of Africana Philosophy. Mm-hmm.